0: Before we dive into the Word, which we're going to, um, you guys need to know a little bit about me. I think it's important to know before you hear a message about the person that's bringing it a little bit. Um, Of course, my name is Brandon. I came uh, from First Baptist Spartanburg. I served there for seven years as the College and Young Adults pastor. Um, Never thought I'd be in ministry. I grew up in and around church. My my parents were divorced. My mom made me go to church. Um, And I'm glad she did. I'm thankful that she did, because a lot of what I learned came back later to benefit uh, what God called my life to, but I grew up uh, in a pretty good church, medium-sized church, stopped going about 11th grade, went to college, the College of Charleston, not the, the Baptist school, the Charleston Southern, I went to the, uh, the Satan school, College of Charleston, so it's like, you got good school, bad school in Charleston, I went to the bad school, um, so I'm downtown and, and doing life there, apart from the Lord, far from God, uh, and my junior year, I meet my now wife, wife. Um, And we started dating. And as we started dating, she drew me closer to the Lord. There was a man in her life uh, that she worked for. His name was Eric. Um, And Eric was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. And so my junior year at the College of Charleston, year 2000, um, surrendered my life to Jesus, radically changed me, Um, stopped plans to go to law school. All I wanted to do was tell people about Jesus. I really just wanted to tell them what he had done in my life. I'd never met him before. I didn't know anything different. And so for me, it wasn't like a call to ministry. I never got this Shining light, called a ministry. It was just, it's what I did, and when I read the Bible, it's what people do when they're saved. And so, if some of you are in here going, "Well, I don't, I can't preach like Cliff, and I don't know what it means to be a part of this church," maybe there's a first-time person here today. I hope somebody here is here for the first time. Listen, when you meet Jesus, you don't have to be called to ministry. It, you are called to ministry, right? Like you tell people you're on mission, your life is on mission, and that is so important in a church plant like this, right? I graduated college at Charleston came to the upstate, served in a small church in Gaffney, then went to Aiken, then went to First Baptist, and last year, actually the the December of 2011, um, my wife and I felt God was calling us out to step out, do something different. We love the city of Charleston, we know that it's about 90% unchurched, and so we were in a place going, okay God, what do you want to do with our lives? And we were just open hands. We have three kids at the time, and we're going, we don't know what you want to do with us, but use us however you see fit. And, and we felt led through a lot of prayer and just Bible study together, God was calling us out to launch a church in Charleston. And looking back on that time, right, I kept a journal, like I wrote all the notes because I was advised to, and like looking back on that season, it was so fresh and it was so raw and it was just so real, like God was telling us to go because it made, made no sense. And in August of last year, resigned from First Baptist, packed up, moved my family down to Charleston, no salary, no pay, worked a full-time job. 40 hours a week, just trying to meet people, start small groups to build a church. Thankfully, we had a team of seven other people that went with us. Um, They were all doing the same thing. And so everything that we see now and we're experiencing now, like we just go, God, it is all you because it doesn't make sense for us to be able to do it on our own. Here's what I want to say to you at Freedom, right? Because your pastor, I had to go through this assessment process uh, for the North American Mission Board. Cliff was assigned to assess me, right? So me and Ashley are like, okay, we know we're crazy. Like you don't, It's like a counseling session. So I'm going to go have counseling with Cliff, who I knew served at Fairview, this big church, and started his own church. So I'm like, he can understand me a little bit. And we sit down, and I'm thinking he's going to, like, rip me apart psychologically. And so we sit down, and he's like, listen, I've been where you are, dude. Like, this is good. We have a lot in common, so this is going to be easy. And it kind of put me at ease. And then later on, he said, man, my church is going to support you guys and, and financially help you. And the encouragement that's been to me has been monumental. Here's what I want to say to you. You guys are in an awesome place eight years in. You're setting up. You're tearing down. There's building plans on the way. I don't want you to lose sight of the early days, right? I want you to know like six months in, I'm in a place as the pastor of this church, and we've got a good group coming. We've got 10 small groups, God's blessing, but I'm in a place where I'm like, okay, nothing is impossible for us in Charleston, right? Like I'm dreaming big, visioning big, and, and, and like sometimes the day-to-day can blog that and like mess that up and cloud the vision, but the truth is... We still believe that 90% of our city, right, the metro area of Charleston, 540,000 people, 90% of them are not involved in church. That means they don't know Jesus, and of the 10% in church, there's a good portion that don't really know Jesus. And so I would say the same's true for Greer. You got a lot of churches around here. It doesn't matter what the, how many churches you have, it's what's being communicated out of those churches. And, and the underlying current that led me to plant a church in Charleston is this, and this is where I'm going today in the message, and this is what I want you to hear. I firmly believe that the majority of churches that we see existing around us miscommunicate the gospel. Let me say that again, because that's the kind of thing that can get me like thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I think that the majority of the churches that you see, and most of the people that you know, if you ask them about what they learn from the church, the message they hear from the church, the gospel is miscommunicated, and miscommunication messes people up. When I was a, a junior in high school, again, I was raised by a single mom, she worked, she spanked, she abused, <laughs> like, she beat me because she had to, uh, and, and when I was in, in high school, um, I, I was a prideful little 17-year-old dude, played football, thought I was the junk, and I was not, but in my head, I thought I was, and every 17-year-old in here, dude, like, y'all, y'all know that, We're, we have got any 17-year-olds here, anybody in the house, teenagers, guys, Yep, okay, right there. See, so you think you're hard. You're not, dude. I mean, you can let that guard down. But when I was in high school, I thought I was the man, right? And so you couldn't tell me anything. And my mom, like, she would, she would threaten me with stuff. And moms, if you threaten, it's a joke. Like, your disciplinary skills are a joke. But she used to threaten. She's like, if you bust curfew, I'm going to take your car away. You can't take my car away. Like, I work. I have to go to a job, right? And I knew this, and I used to play her. Well, this one Friday night after a game, she told me, Brandon, I need you home. I got a little brother 10 years younger than me. She said, I need you home because I need you to watch Blake in the morning. Done. I'll be home in the morning. And, and somehow in that, I missed the curfew line, the, the 1 p.m., that's when you need to be home, or 1 a.m. And I was like, all right, well, I'll be home. And so I went out afterwards and hung out with friends, wasn't doing anything wrong, watched the clock, wasn't drunk, none of that. But I got home about 2 o'clock, right, just blue curfew. And I pull up in the driveway, and I'm, like, hitting the button, like, garage button not opening, it's not open, I'm like, all right, something's wrong, so get out, I go get the spare key under the doormat, there's no spare key, y'all have that system at your house, all right, like didn't have a spare key, and I'm like, dang, stupid sister, she didn't put it back, you know, so I go around, can't get in the door, so I'm like, I gotta ring the doorbell, 2 a.m., bad idea. So I walk around, and the way it was my house, you walk around the sidewalk, front door, and as I'm approaching the front door, like I see bags on the porch, and I'm like, this is odd, you know, like, I walk up, and there's a Rubbermaid container, and there's a big suitcase, little suitcase, book bag, and I'm like, yo, that's, that's my stuff, <laughs> and I get up on the porch, and I see, like, she's packed up my room, like, all the essentials, and they're on the front porch, do you ring the doorbell, or do you not, like, you guys can figure that one out, I turn around, and I was like, all right, I'm going to stay at my, Bo- my friend Bo's house, so I, I go back to the car, drive to Bo's house next morning, go home, right, everybody's awake. And we had a, a very long meeting at the International House of Pancakes. And essentially, what, what happened was this. I was home by the morning to watch my brother. I missed be home by 1 a.m. And, and it wasn't a threat anymore. It was like, there's serious consequences to you not getting the message I'm communicating to you. And, and what I think we've done in the church, big church, I'm not talking just freedom. Right? I believe in Cliff, I believe in what he's doing here, and I believe he's giving you guys the right message. But for the most part, the world out there, people far from God look in, and, and the message they're getting is miscommunicated, and, and we don't understand the consequences of people that don't hear the gospel the right way. We don't understand like there's major consequences if people that we know, friends, family, neighbors, do not hear the gospel. We believe they spend eternity apart from God. So the reason we went to Charleston to plant a church is this, we want to clearly communicate the gospel so that people far from God will be awakened to life in Christ, that's why we're there, that's what you're supporting. So thank you for your support. If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 1, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning. When, when I moved down to Charleston, like I said, I got a job, um, was working 40 hours a week doing government sales and contracting, I did that from the end of August to basically the end of February, and one of the things that I I wanted to do when I moved down was really understand the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I wanted to see, for the first time, because I'd been in a church, big church, running programs, like ministries and the whole nine yards, you guys are familiar with the church down the road, and so a lot of it was people are coming every Sunday and Wednesday, so I've got to do something for the people that come, and now I finally had a break, it was like I I don't have a sermon to preach Sunday, and I don't have like a trip to plan for or any kind of event. And so I was like, I really want to study the person of Jesus. I want to see how he loved people, how he treated people, how he reached people. What did he say? And so I started studying the Gospels and reading like Matthew, Mark and Luke and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and just reading it over and over and over again. And here's, here's what I came to conclude. That Jesus came with a very clear and precise message. And nothing that he said was accidental. Every bit of it was intentional. And, and the banner of his ministry is what we're going to read this morning. And it's what people need to hear that you know who aren't in this building right now. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. Up to this point, Jesus, 30 years old, he grew up Jewish boy, hung out with his dad, worked with his dad, went to the temple, like, he was a Jewish kid, and, and, and he grew into a man, and so 30 years of his life, he hasn't proclaimed any ministry, he hasn't started, like, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and we know that he came and he was baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately after his baptism, he goes off into the desert, led by the Holy Spirit, he goes to the desert where he's tempted by Satan, and for 40 days, he's there. Forty days he's there and he knows he's coming back to his people. And the first thing that he says when he comes back are these words, like, repent and believe the gospel. I had months to prepare my first message for Awaken. Cliff can probably go back and remember, like, the first Sunday, the launch Sunday. You're like, I don't know who's going to come. We've been loving people, inviting people. And, like, I had months to prepare that. And it was daunting to think, like, what's the first thing you're going to say to these people and and I think about Jesus here like he got 40 days to come in and proclaim like you're the Messiah what do you say and he says repent and believe the gospel here's what it means in this culture Jewish people the culture the system that he grew up in it was it was all about works it was scripture memory It was going to the temple, it was making sacrifices, it was keeping the Ten Commandments, it was keeping laws upon laws, like it was an impossible system, right? Like keep the law, follow the law, do as good as you can, and like all about achievement. And so that was what he grew up under, that's what he lived in, and that's what everybody around him lived in, and it was just for the Jews. So you had these Jewish people who tried to be good enough, and then outside of that you had Gentiles, right, who were not even included, couldn't have anything to do with God, so they were over here, and that was the majority of the people. And so you have these two classes, one group going, I'm trying so hard to be so good for God. And you have another group going, I don't even have access to God. Matter of fact, he's not even concerned with me. I can't, I can't get in that circle. And, and Jesus walks into this crowd, and he comes to the Sea of Galilee, and he says, repent, believe in the gospel. Repent literally means change your mind. Like, change the way you think, and then believe the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news, right? Jesus says, change the way you think. I'm bringing good news. And, and you can imagine that caught people's attention, right? Like he goes along and he sees these fishermen and he's out there and this is what he's saying, like, repent, believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, like this guy, we've never heard this before. This is all brand new. I've got a son, his name's Bryson. I don't know if we have a picture of him, maybe we do. Um, Bryson's my five-year-old. And one of the cool things about Bryson is is, he's the most durable kid you'll ever meet, tough as nails. I got a seven-year-old, and I'm not saying Braley's soft, but he's a firstborn, so he's a little timid, kind of scared. This is my family right here. And and so Braley's on the left, right? Bryson's in the middle, feet off the ground. He's hanging on to us. Um, But Bryson is our firecracker. He's a stud and not scared of anything, right? So you look at him, he thinks he's Superman, for instance. We said, what do you want for Christmas this year? They've already started t- asking about Christmas. And Braley wants a frog hunter, like a frog gigging thing. I don't know why. Um, and Bryson said, I want to set a set of wings so I can fly. Why not, right? Sure you can fly, bro. So like, that's, he wants wings. That's Bryson. Well, a couple years ago... Um, we were, we were still in Spartanburg, and I was coming back from a mission trip in New Orleans, and Ashley called me. She said, babe, Bry- Bryson's been sick all week, and I'd, I'd known that. She'd been letting me know, like, he had a headache, and then he had a fever, and then he was throwing up, and he had all these, like, symptoms, and so she went to the doctor, and they were treating it. Well, finally, she went to this pediatric specialist, because his sickness just wouldn't go away. We're seven days in, and, like, all the medicine you can imagine, and this time he's four years old. and So we go to the specialist, they do a scan on him, and they find this knot in his throat, and they say the words, no parent wants to hear, right? Like, your, your white blood cell counts through the roof. He's got this node in his throat. We need to send him to the hospital. And immediately your brain goes, cancer, right? Like, this is going to be a problem. And so I'm on the road coming back from New Orleans, like, freaking out, trying to get home, praying, God, don't let this happen. Like, whatever's going on, please just, you know, we, we submit to your will. We trust that you're good. But, Lord, please just heal my, my little boy. And, and I get back, I get to Spartanburg Regional, and... He was in pediatric ICU for a couple nights, and in the scan, what they found is he had an abscess in the tissue of his throat, and so they treated it with a steroid, knocked it out, and all the symptoms went away. I'm convinced Jesus lived in a culture, religiously, where symptoms were being treated. There was a much deeper need. So like, you would go to the temple to look good. You would make sacrifices to, to show that you're, you're trying to get forgiveness for your sins. You would... Like, these Pharisees who Jesus yelled at all the time, were like, we're holier than thou, we're clean, like, you're not good enough for us, and you're not keeping the law, and we're judging you. Like, over and over again, this system of, like, symptoms, just make the symptoms good and you'll be a good person. And, and what I found in planting a church was a lot of the people that I've interacted with remind me a lot of who I was back in high school right like if you'll just not go to that party or you'll not listen to that music or don't watch that movie or don't drink that drink or don't say those words or don't hang with those guys or date that girl like all these different symptoms if you'll do all these things you'll look the part and you'll be a good little christian boy and you can go to church and everything's great right and it's this treatment of symptoms when in reality all along i had a much deeper need and it wasn't it wasn't like that if i fixed all these things i would be a good person It said if that need was met, everything else would be fixed. And so what I found in planning a church is that most people, when they think about the church, or Christians, right, which the majority of us in this room are that, when they think about Christians, they go, well, I'm not good enough to be in the church, right? Like, I don't have what it takes to be in the church. Like, I've got these issues, and and I I just don't measure up. Jesus here says, change the way you think, and believe in the gospel, because here's the good news. The good news is it's not about how good you are, and it's not about what you do, it's about what I'm going to do. Like, eventually I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to pay the price for sins that you can't pay for. Right, that's the good news. It's not about the works that you achieved, it's about the work that I'm going to achieve on the cross. And from the very beginning, y'all, this is the first sentence Jesus says publicly in his ministry. Like, change the way you think and believe that. Have we miscommunicated that to people in our culture? Think about it. And I'm saying that from someone who served in a 7,000-member church and who served in other big churches and who served in little churches. And I'm, I'm coming from the standpoint of I believe our world hears a totally miscommunicated message that they've got to clean up and come to Jesus. But the Jesus we see says, come to me, I'll clean you up. Totally different. And miscommunication messes people up. So Jesus says, repent, believe in the gospel, And then in verse 17, we see the second thing that he says. Verse 16, it says, after he comes and he says, repent, believe in the gospel. Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. In the, Jewish, in the Jewish system, boys, um, how many of you guys got boys, like moms, dads, boys? Okay, um, you, this is going to blow your minds because you can never imagine your boys doing this. I couldn't imagine my boys doing this. In the Jewish religious system, we've got to understand that, like, religion was at the very center of their society. Like, everything revolved around it. The temple was literally in the middle and everything revolved around it. And so their life, their decisions, their culture, their society, everything revolved around this religion, and so if you had a boy, like, your dream as a dad would be that your boy would grow up and become a rabbi, like, that was the dream, it's the modern day, like, he'll be the president one day, right, like, you want him to be, like, successful, you want, well, maybe not the president, I'm not knocking Obama, I'm, we've had some bad ones, that's all I'm going to say, but uh, maybe you don't want him to be, I wouldn't want my son to be the president, I'd rather him do something else, but, um. You, you think about having a boy in Jewish society. You want, to, you want him to raise, like, be raised up and be a rabbi. Like, that was a prominent position. It was a reputable petition, like, position. Um, and, and so you're like, I want my son to be that. And so what they would do, every Jewish dad mom would put their boy into schooling. And there were three levels of schooling. The first, the first level of schooling was called Bet Shefer. And this is what would happen. From the ages of zero to six, like, you would send your son, so my five-year-old, like, he'd be in this system. And they would, they would go to this school. And the school would be under a rabbi who would teach at the local temple. And the rabbi would teach these boys scripture, right? And they would study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so they would spend their life, the first six, of their for six, seven years of their life, studying the Torah. And their goal was to memorize it. Like, it wasn't just to know, like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We got that, right? But I'm talking, like, memorize the whole first five books. Because this is all they had. It was God's word. It was holy. They wanted to memorize it. And so most six- and seven-year-old boys, like most six- and seven-year-old Jewish boys had the Torah memorized. First five books of the Bible. It's just what they did. It was Jewish society, first century. Right? Like that, that's, we know that to be true. And then after that, so at seven years old, if, if they did have it memorized, they would pass. Kind of like grade school today. You pass. You go to the next, next grade. And the second level was called Bet Talmud. And in Bet Talmud, from seven to about 13 um you would you would go and sit with the rabbi in the temple right so every jewish boy from seven to about 13 16 somewhere in there would go to the temple and they would sit and they would learn the scriptures and so they would sit under this rabbi and they wouldn't just memorize it although most of them did they memorized the other 34 books of the old testament most of them they would sit there and you would discuss the scriptures like what do they mean like who is our god what does Jonah mean, like. What does Job mean? You know, it's kind of like philosophy and learning and just kind of exploring, and there would be this dialogue. And so they would sit under this rabbi at the temple and do this. Every, like, every day, it wasn't something they just did on Sunday, it was daily. This is like school for them. And so most Jewish boys, by the time they're 17, they would have memorized the Old Testament, right, if they're good enough, like if they were dedicated enough, good students, and some of them weren't, and and then they would go and apply to be a disciple of that rabbi. You follow me? Right, now keep in mind, that, this is a weed out process. When you get into your teenage years, right, like some of these guys are like, listen, I'm not, I don't, I can't, I cannot study and memorize these scriptures, like I can go make a living doing something else, I've got to go provide for my parents, like maybe a dad passed away, I've got to provide for mom, so I'm going to be a fisherman or I'm going to go be a farmer or a shepherd, whatever it might be, but I can't continue like being in this system. And so for a lot of guys in their teenage years, they, w- they would have fallen out. But at 17, if if you passed, like if you were good enough and you got all the scriptures and you knew the stuff, then you would go to that rabbi and you would basically apply to be a disciple. And a disciple of a rabbi in the first century Jewish culture, you would literally follow that disciple everywhere, or the rabbi, everywhere they went. And, And if you read tradition, like the dust from the rabbi's sandals would get on your clothes as a disciple because your goal was this, you want to walk so close to the rabbi that you can be one one day. And the request would be this, if you're 18, 19 years old, the request would be, Rabbi, can I take up your yoke? Right, yoke means teaching. Can I take up your yoke and basically be like you? Because the goal of the rabbi is, I want you to be a rabbi like me. And I want you to gain more disciples like me. Like that was, that was the whole system, the Jewish system. And so at 17, if you were good enough, you would go to the rabbi and you would say, can I take up your yoke? And that rabbi would look at you and say the one phrase that every Jewish dad wants their boys to hear, he would say, come, follow me. Like, that was the command. Come, follow me. You're good enough. Like, you can be my disciple. And then that 18 or 19-year-old boy would then, in the third level of Jewish learning, follow this rabbi and become his disciple. Now, let's go back to Sea of Galilee when Jesus comes. He says, repent, change the way you think, believe in the gospel. And then he walks along the Sea of Galilee and he sees a couple guys fishing, we know that the disciples were in their late teens or early 20s when they started following Jesus. So keep in mind, why is a 19-year-old, Simon, Peter, Andrew, John, like why are they fishing? They're not, they're not disciples following a rabbi. At some point, they fell out. They weren't good enough or they didn't pass, right? And Jesus comes along. Everything's strategic in what he's saying, guys. Nothing's accidental. He's been thinking his whole life, what, how am i going to start my ministry, And he comes along and he sees him in this boat. And he looks out and he says, you, you, come follow me. And then he goes on a little further and he says, you, you, come follow me. And he starts calling out these disciples. It was completely upside down in the system of Jewish culture. Like the rabbi would never go to a disciple and say, come follow me, until they asked. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, listen, it is not about how good you are. Yeah, you... You know what, Peter, you did not pass the Jewish school, like you didn't make it, you don't memorize scripture, like you fell out, you wanted to fish, you're rough around the edges, but I want you to follow me, I want you to be my disciple. Just walk close, I'm going to teach you what it looks like to be like me. And so Jesus, for the next three years, just poured his life into him, like gave him ministry to do, and they were on the advance for the kingdom. Every one of the disciples has happened, Matthew, right, he's a tax collector, he's a thief sitting at a table. And Jesus comes up and says, come follow me. And immediately he gets up from his booth, follows Jesus. And we go, wow, man, they must have gave up so much to follow Jesus. But here's the catch. It's the one thing that they needed to hear their whole life. It addressed the core, like inside. I'm good enough. I'm validated. Like, I want to be that, but I was never good enough according to my society's standards. And here's what I found in planting this church so far. And I'm not saying I have it figured out. Holy cow, I've got so much to learn. Like, I, that's why I've been asking questions all morning with Cliff, like, what do you do, how do you do that, why do you do that, like, all the system stuff, but here's what I know, with people, okay, most people look at God, they don't, they don't know that much about Jesus, most people look at God, and they look at the church, and they're like Peter on a boat going, I give up, I didn't make the cut, I'm not good enough, I have too much baggage, right, like, I, I can't bring this stuff to church, so I'm just going to stay out. And what they need to see is a Jesus in us that says, I want you to come. Like, you are good enough because of what he's done. It doesn't matter about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done. So come follow him. Right? That's what people need to hear. There's a guy that is, is one of my favorite stories with Awaken. I've got a picture of, of him and his wife, Sarah, um, for the screens. Um, when I moved down to Charleston, I started working in this company, uh, met a guy named Harry. Um, My wife met his wife, or his girlfriend at the time, her name's Sarah, Um, but they were engaged, they're from New Jersey, Um, yeah, there you go, they're from New Jersey and lost as could be, like, talk about far from God, they're just far from, I mean, every way, and and we started talking, hanging out, Um, we invited them to our small group, told them that we were starting our church through small groups, Um, so he's like, what does that mean for me, am I like in the church?" And I was like, no, man, like, just come hang out with us. We're going to read the Bible together, study a little bit. He's like, okay. Um, came to our first service. The biggest line for him, you say, Harry, what hooked you on Awakening Church? And not even knowing I did it, stood up and said, listen, if, if you're looking for a perfect church or a perfect pastor, it's not me, right? Like, I struggle as much as anybody out here today. Uh, that disarmed him tremendously. He grew up Catholic until he was about 10 years old, went to a Catholic middle school until he got thrown out because he was so bad. Um, so this guy, Harry, was all about works. Like, I'm not good enough. They're living together at the time. They weren't married. Um, and so about a month into them being involved with Awaken, Sarah asked me, Brandon, will you do our wedding? Now listen, I came from, I came from First Baptist, y'all. Like, we rock suits over there. And, and we don't marry unbelievers, right? Don't marry. To, if, if you're not both Christian, I'm not doing your wedding. That was, that was my background. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, we're a, a month into our church, I'm growing to like them as friends, and and I've got a decision to make because there's a lot of eyes at this point involved in Awaken, a lot of people in our small group, and I'm going, if I don't do their wedding, what's it saying? You're not good enough. The same message that he heard getting thrown out of the Catholic Church. So I spend a lot of time in prayer going, God, help me know how to handle this. Give me wisdom, James 1, wisdom that comes from above, and I eventually told Harry and Sarah, I'll marry you, but you've got to commit to counseling with me. Premarital counseling, six weeks, let's do it. And I was like, I got six weeks to win these people to Jesus. That was, seriously, that was my approach. And I was like, Lord, listen, I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm doing this because I feel like you've called me to. Like, when I envision the people that you're going to put in front of me when I left Spartanburg to move to Charleston, it's Harry and Sarah. I remember talking with a pastor friend of mine. They were in a small group now. I remember talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he says to me, now listen, how long are you going to let them come to a small group before you tell them they need to get married? <laughs> I was like, man, they, they don't need to get married. They need Jesus. We can't expect lost people to live like saved people. It makes more sense to live together, right, in Charleston without being married. Financially, it's a beautiful decision. They want to be around each other. Why wouldn't you? Like, the Bible says get married. The world doesn't. And so I was like, okay, six weeks. I got six weeks to pour into these two individuals. And I want you to know, next Sunday, we're baptizing both of them because they've surrendered their lives to Jesus, right? Like, we we can't expect, yeah. And I want you to know this, at Freedom that's your neighbors, that's your coworkers, Y'all, it's the same in Greer as it is in Charleston. Don't buy the lie that somehow it's just a lot harder somewhere else. There's lost people everywhere. Look at this room right now. I know there's other churches around here, but I also know there's a lot of people in the upstate that don't go to church and a lot of them that do still haven't heard the correct message. And this is what I want to encourage you with. I wish that somehow I could put the 150 or so we had last Sunday in, in front of Freedom Fellowship, and you could see the faces of people who God has radically changed their lives and called them on mission. I wish I could stand them up here and every one of them could say to you, it's worth it. Like, keep serving, keep giving, pay for the new building, keep advancing, talk to me, I'm your neighbor. Like, share with me the gospel, I'm your coworker. Like, I, I wish they could all say that because for me, I've been convicted, y'all. I lived in a Christian bubble for 12 years. Right? I didn't know any lost people. You could run through my contacts on my phone, and the only lost person I had was my dad. Everybody was Christian. And if that's you, listen, if, if your world right now is like, man, I just hang out with Christians, my small group in church, and that's kind of my deal. Listen, go find some people that are lost. I was, <laughs> Friday night, we had two, na- I'm sorry, I'm telling a lot of stories. Am long? Am I going too long? Okay, this can cut me off in a minute. If this mic stops working, I'm going to keep yelling. But I had two neighbors that moved into my street. That two sets of neighbors, one from California, one from St. Louis. Charleston is a melting pot. And, and we had them over for dinner Friday night. And both of them, man, they don't know the Lord at all. And it was really awkward because we had dinner and then they're like, hey, let's go back to our house, Toby's house. So I go to Toby's house and they start drinking and stuff. I don't drink. I gave that up when I was saved. I found that my influence is greater when I'm not drinking. So I'm hanging out over there and they're, they're having alcohol. And I'm telling the story of the church because I'm trying to figure out how do I slide this in there? Uh, And this is the response I get. Toby says, so wait a minute, you left the church and you came down here with seven people to start a church and you didn't know anybody. I was like, yeah. He was like, man, that's awesome. Fill in the blank. And I was like, you know what? That is, you know, (laughs) that is awesome. And I'm like, that's that's the response from the world. Y'all, they want to see that we believe in what we preach. All right, like we say we live by faith, we'll live it. Like, live it. Get out of your comfort zone. Stop being secure. When I was at this wedding, I finished the wedding with Harry and Sarah. And their family, none of them, they told me on the way up there, they flew me up to Jersey, we did their wedding at Trump National. And, I, and I, when I landed, Harry said, listen, Brandon, because they'd already come to Christ at this point. And I said, I'm sharing the gospel at your wedding. They said, good, nobody there knows Jesus. Nobody. You got 200 people in chairs, beautiful ceremony, none of them know Jesus. And I'm looking out going, God, thank you so much for putting a burden on my heart to come to Charleston For leading me to do their premarital. Because they're going to hear about Jesus today. Right? Like, what are we doing if all we do is come to church and do Bible studies while our neighbors go to hell? Think about it. Think about it. Because you may not be in a position to up and go to Charleston or up and go to Brooklyn. Like, you may not be in a position to up and go to some other place. But when you drive into your neighborhood, do you see the harvest like Jesus does? Can you see lost people? Can you see them going, they have no hope outside of Jesus? That's what you're called to at Freedom Fellowship, to find freedom in Christ. And I'm convinced more than ever that the only way that people are going to find freedom in Christ or be awakened to life in Christ is if we clearly communicate and live out the message of the gospel, same way Jesus did. Repent, believe in the gospel, come follow him. We've got to do it all out first. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the calling that you put on every one of our lives in here that claims to know And love your son Jesus. And this morning if there's anyone in this room right now. Who does not know anyone who's far from you. God I pray that you would surround them with people who need to hear the message. Of hope and love and forgiveness and grace found only in the cross. God I thank you for this church. Who believed in what we're doing enough to support us. I thank you for the people in this room who I don't even know. But who had a hand in leading Harry and Sarah to Jesus, and leading Jeff to Jesus, and leading Sean and Lillian, and the list goes on. God, thank you for this, these people who are faithful and willing to invest in the work that you're doing in Charleston. And God, I pray a blessing over Freedom Fellowship. That God, as they give, you would multiply here. We know we can't outgive you. As they send people, that you would bring more people in here. God, I believe in Cliff and his leadership. I know he walks with you. And so God, bless his family. And I ask more than anything that you would continue to use us as missionaries to advance your kingdom, whether in Greer or Charleston or anywhere in this world. God, I love you. Thank you so much for your people here in this church. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.